Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Our speaker this evening attained his Master's of Divinity and Master's of Arts degree in Moral Theology from Mount St. Mary's Seminary in 1989. Ordained to the priesthood in that same year, Monsignor Pope has served at several parishes in the Archdiocese of Washington and was named a Monsignor in 2005 by Pope Benedict XVI. He has served as pastor at Holy Comforter St. Cyprian Parish in Washington, D.C. since 2007. And if you want to follow, uh, follow along with Monsignor Pope's writings, he blogs at blog.adw.org. ADW as in Archdiocese of Washington. Uh, so that's a blog you want to follow. If you follow blogs, put this one in your browser, save it, come to it every day. There's great stuff on there. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming back Monsignor Charles Pope. All right. Um, you know, I have to say, when I was first asked to speak on this topic, like one of these, becoming children of faith, and then I was told it was on Palm Sunday, I'm like, head-scratching moment, you know, what's, what's the deal here? And uh, uh, Father uh, gave me the um, insight he had. You know, there's this um, little line that we sing um, at, the, uh, at Palm Sunday, if you do the traditional St. Theodolf, all glory, Lord, and honor to the Redeemer King. Well, anyway, there's a version or a verse that comes up. Uh, the children of the Hebrews with palms before you went in praise and prayer and anthems. Hosanna, then they sang. I forget how the, the final verse goes. So there is this image of the children, especially leading the Hosannas and, and the palm branches and... Uh, uh, there's a line in the Psalms that says, uh, Exorian Fonsium, from the mouth of, of babes there comes forth praise, O Lord, to foil your enemies. So when the very adult Pharisees and scribes says, tell these young people to be quiet, the Lord simply said, if they don't sing out, the very stones would have to shout out, you see, again. So God will be praised. And, and, uh, but again, there's something um, of a kind of a, a hint, if you will, uh, in the Palm Sunday liturgy about the praises of the children of Israel. And some might argue, well, that just children means only they're just the people in general. Okay, but children, I think, uh, again, are very, uh, they're important reminders in our midst of some things that too often as adults we unlearn far too quickly. And so, in, in analyzing this topic today, I want to look, and you see in your, in your notes, I, I kind of have three uh, ideas here, there are three kind of breaks in the thoughts, namely uh, descriptions of um, being, becoming children of faith and developing a more childlike, not childish, but childlike faith, and then, uh, so we have some descriptions, some distinctions, because the scripture does make important distinctions here, and then some delineations, some dis 
some, if you will, spelling out of a, of a kind of a, uh, what, what does a more childlike faith look like, sound like, or is like, all right? Now, with all that in mind, let's just do this little background, though. We're in a broken down culture, and so often when we try to use these images that Scripture makes quick use of, for example, God's fatherhood, well, we're in a culture where fatherhood is in, in, is in crisis, and so for, we have to sometimes be very careful to understand these things a little bit more like Scripture. In a, in a, in a reasonably up-and-running culture, fatherhood isn't in the kind of crisis it's in. I would also argue, though, today that childhood is in crisis in our culture. First of all, it's far too short. I mean, what's the first exposure to pornography that most kids have today, you know? And there's kind of a crossing over away from innocence when that, when that happens. And so again, we see that. And we also see, though, that I, I have to say that uh, in our culture, children are at times far too bold. They upbraid their elders. And, uh, you know, they, they say things that some of us who are a little older would not have dreamed of doing, or certainly wouldn't have gotten away with it when we were younger. But today, very often we find children are, are far too bold, and they, as I say, they grow up too quickly, and they begin to become manipulative and, uh, and so on. So again, we don't want to simply say, oh, children are wonderful all the time. You know, anyone who talks like that has not raised children. <laughs> you usually hear nuns and priests talk like that, right? You know, okay. But on the other hand, there is this little ideal of childhood that we want to hold up, um, which, again, it's in the ideal, and in a, in a broken-down culture like ours, the ability to, to grasp that ideal is getting shorter and shorter and smaller and smaller. But that said, there's still a lot that Scripture has, and, and likewise our own understandings have to teach us. So, with all those little disclaimers in mind, let's get started. And I want to say that uh, they're, they're, we're going to look at some Scriptures here that, first of all, uh, admonish us or encourage us to a more of a, a childlike simplicity. Um, but in order to illustrate, I think, uh, before we get into the scripture text, I'm going to just tell you a little, um, a little story. Uh, oh, it's a preacher's story. If it didn't happen, it should have happened, right? <laughs> and uh, basically, it goes like this, uh, that there was a, a little girl, and uh, she received her first Holy Communion, and um, she returned to her pew, and she w it was noticed by her parents that she was rather deep in prayer, with her eyes closed, and she, her mouth was moving. She was talking a lot to God after she received her first communion. So after Mass, they asked her, well, what, what were you praying about after your first communion? And she said, well, I prayed for you, Mommy and Daddy, and I prayed for my dumb brother, too. And then I sang Jesus a song, and I told him of my favorite ghost story. Okay, so. True story. If it's not true, it ought to be true, right? Okay. I told him a ghost story. You know, again... <laughs> All of these are ways to say there's just a, a kind of a freedom, a kind of a simplicity, you know, that, that, that comes from that description of prayer, right? See, what happens is we start to grow up and we get very formal. I must pray like this. I use a stained glass voice and say words that somebody else wrote and that I don't really mean. And, and too often our prayer becomes uh, more and more um, distant from God, and we lose that, that quality of an intimacy with God, and I'll return to that a little bit later in the talk, but I want to just say that, just to paint a little quick picture to you of what I think um, at, at the heart of so many of our struggles is to sort of return to a kind of a childlike simplicity, wherein we're able to call God Abba, hmm? 
Now, Abba is not baby talk. Abba is not uh, dada or anything like that. Abba, though, is the family term for God. It's what even an adult father will call his, uh, will call, you know, it's what an adult son or daughter will call their father, Abba. Now, I was just in the Holy Land, and up there on Mount Precipice, and there were these little kids about, well, a little older, but just running around, and Abba, 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 Abba. And I said, wow, there it is. There it is, you know? Just a little kid running out crying, Abba, Abba, you know, call, where are you, Daddy? Where are you? And I'm, you know, the, the guy, he sort of peeks around the little rock up there. He says, I'm here. Says, oh, they run to him, Abba, Abba. Just to hear little children in Israel speaking like that is very powerful because, you know, this vision uh, that we're told by, by the St. Paul that you didn't receive a, a, a spirit of, a, of, a, of fear, or, you know, to, to fall, uh, slavery to fall back into fear. But, but a spirit of adoption that cries out, Abba, Abba, which is, again, a beautiful, intimate family experience of God as, as my father, who cares for me, who loves me, and uh, like a little child running and saying, Abba, Abba. Okay, so the, um, we have then this uh, beautiful, these, some of these beautiful scriptures here to look at now. Let's take a look at them. It's on your sheet there. For the first one from Luke. And Jesus rejoiced in, in the Holy Spirit, and he declared... Father, I, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned, yet you reveal them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son and the one to whom he chooses to reveal him. So again, you kept these things hidden from the wise and learned. You revealed them to the littlest children. Hmm? So... Again, I, well, what's the Lord getting at here? I think that the Lord is getting at what we call the gift of wonder and awe. Wonder and awe. <clears throat> there is a, um, a very powerful thing that a lot of us begin to lose as we become adults. And also, especially in a scientific culture. But what do kids always ask? Why? Why? And then they ask the most unnerving questions. Like, um, why do birds fly? <laughs> I remember my, my philosophy teacher said, he said, um, you know, um, a lot of people say that, um, you know, they ask the question, you know, you know how, how is it that, that, that birds can fly? I said, well, birds can fly because they have wings. He says, no, birds have wings because they can fly. In other words, uh, we, we tend to put the, the cart before the horse. We say, the, the birds are able to fly, uh, you know, so that, so the, and that's why they have wings. See, very often we think, well, because they have wings, they can fly. No, they have wings because they, because they can fly. There's an, there's an internal thing that God gives them, and so they have wings. And you and I have the capacity to think and to articulate and to speak, and so we have this beautiful gift of speech and large brains and so on. But again, we, there's something about wonder and awe that slips away from us. You know, uh, kids are always trying to figure stuff out and asking why, and does the light really go off if you close the refrigerator door? And <laughs> yeah. They're fascinated by everything, you know, and at some point, we stop doing that, don't we? We stop asking those kinds of questions. And um, in a way, I'm kind of convinced that a lot of atheism comes from this too. I remember a debate many years ago, uh, Cardinal Pell was debating, I forget his name, Hitchens or one of these guys. And of course, they, they, they always come to this, this the, the, the heart of their argument. 
if they're, you know, so you know, I'll use a little bit of the British accent because they're two Brits or a Brit and an Australian, but they're, he says, if your God is real, why is that evil? Why is there suffering? Why do people suffer? Why does a, a deer break its leg in the window and the wolves come and devour it? Why all this? If your God is so... And Pell just sat there and waited. And uh, finally, he, you know, the, his, his uh, atheist interlocutor finished and he said, uh, well, you've asked me a question. He says, it's a very good question, I might add. Why do you say is there evil? Now, I will answer your question if you will answer my question. In fact, I have several for you. You say, why is there evil? Well, I will say to you, why is there love? Why is there loyalty, goodness, beauty? Why is there truth? Why is there anything at all? See? Now, those are what we call imponderables in a way, aren't they, right? The problem of evil is an imponderable. We don't always understand the layers. We've, we've come to learn, if you're faithful, that evil and sufferings have it has, has a place. Suffering teaches us humility. Suffering teaches us, uh, you know, to uh, to trust God more. Suffering reminds us of the passing quality of this world. Suffering builds up strength and courage in us, and we learn gifts that we used to have that we have that we didn't know we had, and and so on. So there's there's a role we we sort of know that, but still it strikes us as deeply mysterious. Why? Does God permit so many bad things to go on for so long? And it's one of those imponderables. But there are a lot of imponderables. And one of the things that we start to lose is our, our, our just sense of wonder and awe at life's imponderables. Yes, it's a, it's a valid question. Why is there evil? But why is there love? Where does it come from? Why is there loyalty? Or goodness or truth? Why do we have a sense of indignity when, when we see injustice? Where does that come from? Really, at the end, why is there something rather than nothing? These are those imponderables that should keep us humble, but also, in a much more childlike way, say, Wow! I don't know! Why, Daddy? Why? We fall to our knees and we run to God and we say, teach me. I don't have all the answers. But what happens to us when we start to grow up? I know a few things. Thank you. <laughs> and God looks down and he laughs, you know. He says, you know. He says, they think they know a few things. You know what, son? They do know a very few things. <laughs> and in, in knowing a few things, we think we know all things. And there's so much we don't know. And children are kind of powerfully aware that they don't know. And that's why they're always, they're never too proud to say why. Or to ask directions. Or to, to just cry out in the anguish, you know, why? Not just the, you know, informational why, but the more existential why. But, but they cry out and they wonder and they ponder. And somewhere along the line we shut down. And so the Lord says, you know, Heavenly Father, so many of the learned and the clever, and those who think they've got a few things figured out, they've stopped asking questions. But to the merest children, you've revealed your mysteries. Children have a sense of wonder and awe at all things. I, I have to say, I'm, I find, uh, I'm, getting, I'm going to get controversial here, I'm sorry, but um, I find children's liturgies uh, and the concept of them a little tedious because, well, we need to make everything explainable and understandable to children. No, we don't. Don't. Don't do that. You know, in other words, not, don't keep everything opaque, but at some level, children don't understand anything, including the Mass. 
And that's just part of their experience in life, and that's okay. And as they begin to make a journey, and they'll begin to understand. But so often we want to sort of put it, dumb everything down to the, to the level of a four-year-old. You know, really, no, don't do that. You know, I mean, just let them have this experience of wonder and awe. Ooh, incense, like, wow, smoke, man. You know, just, they're excited, you know, and let them, let them just kind of, again, rejoice and ask why. And, you know, we've, we've lost so much mystery in the Mass to begin with. And then to rob even the children of it and dumb it even further down and, you know, bring out silly things and silly songs and so on. I, I find, per personally, I find that a little tedious. There is a time for catechesis and I think there's a time even, you know, occasionally some of these parishes have Liturgy of the Words for children, where for, at least for the Liturgy of the Word, some of them go aside, at least the youngest kids. But at the end of the day, I wouldn't do a lot of that. I think we want to keep children amazed. And, wonder, and just fill with wonder and awe. And don't rob them too quickly of that experience and try to explain everything to them. Again, what the Lord is getting at here then, I think, is what I call the gift of wonder and awe, where children so instinctively cry out, Wow! Neat! And they're excited and they're thrilled at the mystery of things or getting a little glimpse or an unlocking of something of the mystery of things, but that's the journey. And... So often we think we've got God figured out, you know, who is God or who is Jesus? Jesus is the third person or the second person of the Blessed Trinity. He's hypostatically united with the humanity. Uh, he is the, uh, you know, he's the Redeemer, the Sanct, you know, you know. So you're quoting the Creed, but you haven't uncovered the mystery of Jesus. See, just knowing a few facts, know your facts, don't invent your own religion. Don't do that. But have a kind of a holy silence before the Lord and realize that so much we don't know. So the first, I think, quality of childhood that we see here is this, this beautiful image of wonder and awe and that it's, when we start to think we know a few things, our world begins to get very tiny about a few things. Be more like children who don't know anything and are always saying, why? Woo! <gasps> ah! You know, and are excited and thrilled at the mystery and the wonder of all things, you know? By the way, there's a guy named Gerhard Schroeder. He's a scientist, and he's, um, he, he takes a, he's also a believer. I believe he's a Jew, not a Christian, but he loves to just unpack the wonder and awe that science is showing us today, the, just the hidden things that have been revealed to us that should have us on our knees, just saying, wow, God, you do all things well, even at the smallest, tiniest level, and in the furthest reaches of space. Lord, you do everything powerfully and wonderfully. We should be on our knees saying, wow. But we say, mm, now we know a few things, there is no God. What's wrong with us? And so Gerhard Schroeder has written a number of these books um, but where he tries to speak of some of the scientific discoveries and just do a little bit of wonder and awe stuff with us. So if, you know, if you're looking for this, it's, it's an amazing thing uh, to just be able to be kind of a mystic on the move who just is never, never ending in their, their fascination at the glory and the majesty of God on display in even the smallest details of creation, who's always shouting out, wow! You know, every now and again, um, when we're on a difficult plane ride or something and the plane lands, well, we applaud. <laughs> right? But, you know, don't you think that every time the darn thing takes off, everyone should be going, wow, neat! I mean, how does this heavy thing lift up and, you know? And, uh, you know, St. Thomas would say, well, angels lift it up. <laughs> and uh, the scientists will say, well, the, 
the wing, the wing thing and the thrust creates a, uh, a negative pressure above the wing and positive pressure below the ring, wing, and so the thing lifts up. It's called lift. Whatever. It's a bunch of words. <laughs> wow! <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. So, again, children have that. And somewhere, if we're not careful, we lose that. And part of the journey back is to become a mystic on the move who can't believe the glory of a simple flower or the incredible majesty of photosynthesis. I mean, I put out this garbage called CO2 and the plants take it in and they give me back oxygen? That's pretty neat. Wow! Who would have thought of that? You know? <laughs> You know, so again, this is uh, what the Lord is getting at so many times. You know, the learned and the clever think they know a few things, and they do know a very few things, and their world gets very small and very tiny very quickly. Whereas the little children, the whole world is to be explored. <gasps> Neat, and they, those kinds of things. All right, well, let's move on. We have Luke 18. People were bringing their little children to Jesus to have him bless them. And when the disciples saw this, they, rebu he, Jesus, uh, they, uh, I'm sorry, they rebuked the parents. Get those crying babies away, in other words, right? Jesus called the children to him, and he, said, and he said, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And truly I tell you, if anyone does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child, he'll never enter it. Wow. So here we see then a summons to dependence and humility. So we've gone now from wonder and awe to another quality of children, dependence and humility. Now the Mark inversion is even a little bit stronger. Mark 10, I think it is, and read it a lot of times in the baptismal rites, and it goes like, basically, when Jesus saw them hindering the little children, it says in the English text that I'm most familiar with, he became indignant. Now even in English, getting indignant is a little strong. I mean, you're so angry you're losing your dignity, right? But the Greek is even stronger. It means he was snorting with anger. <laughs> Very indelicate, huh, to be snorting with anger. He was really mad. And he says, let these little children come to me. The kingdom of God belongs to them. And then comes the teaching. I'm telling you right now, if you don't receive the kingdom of God like these kids, like these little kids over here, you're not entering it. Whoa. Now again, what happens to us as we grow up, I've got things under control, everything's fine. Got my degree, my job, I know what I'm doing, I know a few things, and we become very independent. Now, think of a little child, though. You know, these little kids over here, there's very little you, they can do for themselves. They didn't drive here today. They need you to feed them, to clothe them, to, to put a roof over their head. Now, there are some things these little kids can do all by themselves without your help. You know what I'm talking about? You know, eating or maybe poopy diapers or whatever, but you get the idea. But at the end of the day, or, you know, obviously breathing, but I'm going to tell you right now, it's even more radical with us and God. I can't even cause the next beat of my heart. That's how dependent I am on God. As dependent as these little kids are on their parents, we're even more dependent on God for every fiber of our being, for everything that's up and running, or every function of every cell, every part of every atom that makes up what we are. We're dependent completely on God for everything, for the air we breathe, for everything around us that's going on. Those Van Allen belts out there that keep the harmful rays of the sun from you know, cooking us like a microwave. They're, 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 the Van Allen belts are up there running for you. Are you, are you, are you grateful? You got Jupiter and Saturn out there catching comets, and there's this mysterious asteroid belt, and it keeps them sort of at bay. Occasionally they bang and they, they fly off course, but 
Generally speaking, those babies are kept out there. Wow, and God's doing all that, see? And so again, we're very dependent on God. I mean, for, moment, for every beat of our heart. Now look, I'm six feet tall, and I, I hate to say about 40 pounds overweight, but this is what I look like to God. And that's what you look like, just like little kids, see? Totally dependent. And so again, we, we lose that, though. And so we think, don't worry, God, I've got it under control. I can handle it. Don't need you right now. Thank you. Now, there's some old gospel songs that come to mind. You know, one of them, well, one of the Psalms says, before I was afflicted, Lord, I strayed. Sometimes God's got a little, a little trouble coming to our life to remind us, man, you actually need me. But another gospel song says, Lord, the way may not be easy, but you never said that it would be. But I tell you, Lord, when my way gets a little too easy, I tend to stray from thee. Lord, got this all figured out, God. I can handle this. Thank you. You can't handle anything. You can't even produce the next beat of your heart. No, I've got all my plans laid up for tomorrow. The, 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 the report at the office is ready to go. I'm ready to get the whole PowerPoint. It's all ready to go. I'm all in control. Yeah, that's right. If you wake up tomorrow. <laughs> right? Okay, so you see the idea. We lose this. Now, these kids know how to run. If they're in the slightest sign of trouble or hurt or concern, Mommy, Daddy, whoosh. Just like those little kids up on Mount Precipice there in the Holy Land. Abba, Abba! Are you like that? That's what the Lord's getting at here. You've got to receive the kingdom of God like a little child. Or you won't enter it. Every need, everything I need, I run to God. I say, Daddy God, I love you. Help me. Help me, you see. So, again, we, we, we see that um, this is a text that calls us to humility and dependence. Well, isn't dependence a bad thing, Father? Shouldn't we be teaching independence? Not from God. Now, some of you got a 40-year-old still living in your basement. Now, that's a little bit of a different matter. But, but again, I'm just going to say to you that at the end of the day, even we have to depend, we have to learn a little more to depend on each other than we're reasonably ready to do, right? For example, let me just tell you something. I am grateful to the people who paved the roads that I drove on to get here. Are you? Did you not depend on them? What about these lights? Someone's working in a coal mine out there in West Virginia. Are you grateful? Yeah. Oh, no, I'm independent. I don't need... Yeah, you don't, yeah, that's right. Every time you flip on the lights, thank God for a coal miner. Thank God for somebody down at the power plant. You see what I'm saying? So even there, we have to become not too radical about this idea. Yes, there's a proper sense of human independence when I have to step up and, and be an adult and take authority over my life. I got that. But that's a very limited window, and it's, not, it's a non-existent window when it comes to God. We've got to get back into this understanding that we never grow up to God. We're always His little children. We're always prone to wander off into the stupidest trouble and get into all kinds of mess. But all He's got to do is take His eyes off us for a minute, which He doesn't do, but we take our eyes off Him, and the next thing you know, we're off into some sort of trouble. So we've learned then some qualities. We're looking now at um, some of these descriptions of becoming children of faith. And we've learned in the first one that wonder and awe, right? That you, you, the learned and the clever don't get what the merest children sometimes get. And what are they supposed to get? Wow! There's more here! I don't know everything! <gasps> Teach me! So there's a wonder and awe. And then there's humility and dependence. Well, number three here, let's look at this. It says... Um, this is St. Paul now writing to us. Brothers, brethren, consider the time of your calling. Not many of you are wise by human standards. Not many powerful, not many of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. 
He chose the lowly and the despised of the world and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast in his presence. And so again, we, we accept the fact that uh, most of us don't run nations or corporations. Some of you may do, maybe you do, but you get the idea. Generally speaking, we're small, we're insignificant, but it's not, that's not our glory. What, what makes you great? What, makes, what, what brings you glory is if you know the Lord. And the Lord is letting his, the light of his truth shine in your life. See? That's what makes us great. That we were called and taught by God and that we carried the spark of glory within us. Our glory is not of us or from us. Whatever glory we do have is on loan from God. And we receive it and we hope that it shines, but it's God's. And more often than not, God uses, as it says in this text, the humble, the lowly, those of no repute, to humble those. Now, let, let me go to the top of the chain here for a minute, and I can pick on this group because I'm a member. The clergy. Let me just say something. Every now and again, you know, I'll hear people say, why don't the priests say more? Why don't the bishops say more? We should. Shame on us. But let me just tell you, true reform never comes from bishops or the clergy. True reform comes from y'all and from religious communities. True reform in the church comes from beneath, not from above. I can, there's very few exceptions. There are a few. You've got a John Vianney in there. You know, you've got a few bishops, and, but you get the idea. True reform in the church, more often than not, comes. Now, let me, let me uh, get even more. Let's bring in more local. For years and years and years, the bishops, there was a, there was a document from the Second Vatican Council. Yes. The Second Vatican, all the bishops of the world got together and they, and they wrote a document called Intermericifa, which means, you know, among the wonderful things that God has given us is the, the, this, new, this new way of communication. Back in those days, it was television and radio, and so it's a lot more now, right? But Intermerifica says to us, look, uh, we need as a church to become more organized, and we need to start founding radio stations and television stations. And so the bishops all had committees and blue ribbon panels, and they got all the experts together, and they started producing material, and nobody watched it. <sighs> By the way, the definition of boring, answering questions that people are not asking. <laughs> One little nun... Mother Angelica, $200 in a garage. That's how she got started. And now there's a worldwide communications thing, which I'm part of now too, the EWTN, you know. It's amazing, right? See what God does, see, you know. And all the social service agents and all the social justice people in the world with all their blue ribbon panels and all their government agencies could never do what a little nun in Calcutta just did. Remember the poor. All their documents, all their things, just a little woman, but their head bowed, saying, remember the poor. See? So, again, we all have to remember again that there is this uh, remarkable humility that we need to have, not just for ourselves, but also as we look to people that we don't regard as being all that. And remember that ordinary people do wonderful and extraordinary things. And very often all the blue ribbon panels and everything don't, don't. And so again, a kind of a, some of the concepts of a spiritual childhood would involve some of these sorts of ideas, which we've looked at. Again, fundamentally just to list them, we've looked at this question of again having, you know, again this um, wonder and awe that children have. Oh, wow, ooh, neat. 
Or, again, we, we see that we have, there's a, a magnificent uh, quality of, you know, this idea of humility and dependence, too easily that we lose, with, especially with our relationship with God and even with one another. And then there's this, this kind of acceptance of the fact that God can do amazing things through the lowliest and through the smallest. Again, that line, that psalm comes to mind, ex ore infantium, you know, from the mouth of babes, Lord, comes forth praise to fall your enemies. So again, these are just some of the descriptions. Now, a few distinctions, though, to be made, and there's your notes, and then we'll get back to the definition and kind of begin to wrap it up a little bit and bring up some questions from you. But um, some distinctions. First of all, childlike is not the same as childish. Okay, or infantile, right? So we have a text here today from Ephesians. Uh, it was the Lord who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the works of ministry, to build up the body of Christ, until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, as we mature to the full measure of the stature of Christ. So that we will no longer be like infants tossed about by the waves and carried around by every wind of teaching and by the clever cunning of men who in their deceitful scheming, uh, with their deceitful scheming, instead, speaking the truth and love, we will in all things grow up into Christ himself, who is the head. From him the whole body is fitted and held together by every supporting ligament. As each individual part does its work, the whole body grows and builds itself up in love. So, in other words, we're called to a spiritual maturity. Uh, that is not, as it says, wrong about by every wind of trend and the latest thing and the latest doc the so-called doctrines of men and all the latest things. We have to come to a kind of a sober maturity. So there is, if you will, uh, something that Scripture says to us to be had. It's, we're not just... Uh, you know, absolutizing this gift of childlike simplicity, right? But we're also balancing it with a need for maturity and growth and a sober, keen understanding rooted in a mature faith that can say, that is not the mind of God. See? And so again, these are the things that, uh, that are exhorted here. Now, if you turn the page over, you'll see some more text. St. Paul is lamenting. Brothers, I, I could not address you as spiritual but as worldly, as infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for solid food. In fact, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> you're, you're just not mature. You're not, you know, some things are for the spiritually mature, and you ain't it. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> so there is a growth, a maturity that we're called to have, Right? And again, this, this takes uh, growing in stages so that things that don't, we, we don't understand at first, later we go back and we understand them. There are certain works of spirituality and so on that I couldn't really read in seminary or before. I, I wasn't really ready for them. But now after some 30-some 30, uh, you know, years of uh, growing maturity since you know, seminary and so on, I, I went to the seminary and, and, and you know, some 30 years of being serious in my walk, I can say this, that um, there's a lot of things I didn't used to be able to understand, now I do, and some things uh, I still don't understand, and I still need to grow into them. But, so again, growth and maturity are important, and uh, we ought to be making progress. And St. Paul says, there just comes a time when you've got to go from mother's milk to solid food, and some of you hadn't made it yet. You're still infantile in the faith. Or again, one other text, which is from Hebrews, it says pretty much the same thing. Um, we have this much to say, but it's hard to explain. He's trying to talk about the high priesthood of Christ and the divinity of Christ and 
the glory and the majesty of Christ and so on. And he says, look, we have much more to say about all this, but it's hard to explain because you are dull of hearing. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to reteach you the basic principles of God's word. You need milk, not solid food. Now everyone who lives on milk is still an infant, inexperienced in the message of righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who, by constant use, have trained their sensibilities to distinguish good from evil. All right, but Father, but Father, then what is it? Are we called to maturity and in adulthood? Or are we called to childlike simplicity? And you know the answer. It's both. You know what? Very often, we, um, we've, lost a, a very, we've lost a lot of sophistication about language and about teaching. One of the most common errors of the day, and it happens all the time in the blogosphere, is that people take an argument, or I might make a point in one of my blogs. I'll just, I'll, I'll be the victim here, all right? Um, I'll make a point in one of my blogs, and someone say, oh, and they absolutize my point, and then knock the absolute version down and say, your point is just terrible. Now, I'll give you a quick example. Um, I was talking a little bit in one of my um, uh, blog posts about some remedies for anxiety that Jesus offers in, in one of his Gospels. And I went through and I talked about these remedies for anxiety, and, um, and so on, and it says, oh, and someone wrote in, oh, well, obviously you have no sense of psychology. <laughs> there are other reasons just than what you dispate, this, you know, what, what you set forth. And I said, amen, brother. <laughs> I mean, I've been through years of psychotherapy, and, but I was trying to show that Jesus offers some teachings, you know, as well, and it's not either or, both and, but what happens in a lot of people's mind today is we hear an argument or a point being made, we take it, then we absolutize it, and, and that's wrong. Don't ab most things are not meant to be absolutized. They're meant to be held in a careful balance with other truths that are often meant to balance them. And one of the beautiful things of Catholicism is our nuance and our, our notion of balance, that one teaching is often there to balance another teaching. For example, theologically, are you free or is God sovereign? Both. And you say, well, how can that be? It seems like they're in conflict. How can I, if God is sovereign, then I, and I can say no to him, it doesn't sound like he's sovereign. Shh, don't talk too much. <laughs> okay, you got to be a little more childlike about it, but you have to say both are true, both are meant to balance each other, and yes, they're in tension, except that there's some tension there. Now, orthodoxy holds the tension. Heresy says, I will not abide the tension. I pick one and throw the other thing away. Don't be a heretic. Heretics are relentlessly adult. Be more childlike. Be, be orthodox. In other words, hold these things and don't have it all. Don't think that you have to have it all figured out or that you can have it all figured out. Sometimes different truths, which even seem to pull in different directions, both of them are held and they're meant to be held in a careful balance and they are meant to be uh, appreciated and uh, that they both have something to teach us and that we hold them in balance. And this is very often underappreciated today. We live in a time of absolutizing. It's funny because in a relativistic age, people do, are doing a lot of absolutizing. For example, doesn't it annoy you how many people when you're talking to them say, oh yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Oh, do you think this is true? Absolutely. Stop that. Bat banish that word. It's just, you know, but anyway, it's, a, it's a pet peeve. Sorry. But it's paradoxical in a relativistic age, but it's what St. Uh, well, I'll call him saint, but what Pope Benedict called the tyranny of relativism, right? That very often, relativism is anything but relative. When, you, when, you're, when you're in a relativistic kind of climate, what do you end up doing? Yelling louder, shouting more, becoming more obstinate, and that's how you win. You don't win through proper reasoning. You win through yelling, shouting, power, 
tyranny, okay, and you take and you absolutize and you impose, you are not only going to love this gay wedding, you're going to take pictures at it and you're going to smile or we're going to charge you with a hate crime. And we tolerant. <laughs> See? So again, what you do is you take these things and you know, these things are taken and they're absolutized. Well, I'm getting into a different topic, so let me get back to our topic. <laughs> but um, we have here a balance then to maintain between growing to maturity and yet always maintaining a sense of childlike wonder and awe simplicity before God, a sense of dependence, a sense of crying out to Him and knowing how much everything really depends on Him. And we, they're both to be held. And we invoke certain things at different times, but we hold them both. There's an old saying in Latin, ceteris paribus. Um, in English it means other things being held equal. So, okay, we're making this point. We should have a childlike faith, other things being equal. In other words, we're not just throwing everything away, we have a childlike faith and we're, we're holding other things equal, that there's also a place for maturity, there's also a place for, for growth and so on. Okay? So, um, now, uh, let's now then, with, with some of these sort of tensions or balances that have been, let's look at some delineations. I want to read to you some quotes from a great master um, of uh, spirituality, Garigou Lagrange. Uh, and his classic work is The Three Ages of the Spiritual Life. Uh, it's put out by TAM Publication, a big two-volume tome. And so only buy it if you're serious about <laughs> doing some reading, all right? Uh, but Ralph Martin's book, uh, The Fulfillment of All Desire, is probably your first go-to source. But you, when you want to ramp up from there, you go to Garigou Lagrange, the great uh, Dominican. Now, he talks about spiritual childhood here in the three ages of the interior. So let's, let's, let's notice again, just to return to our theme and, and to, to begin to wrap it up. We find in a child, as a rule, simplicity and consciousness of his weakness. Does that describe you? Simplicity, we'll get back to that word in a minute. The simplicity or absence of duplicity of a child is wholly spontaneous. In a child, in him, there is no labored refinement, no affectations. He generally says what he thinks. <laughs> Ouch, right? Sometimes they, they're brutally honest. Sometimes kids are. Ew, this is, tastes terrible. <laughs> or they'll yell, yell, you go to a neighbor's house and some kid will yell out, Mommy, why does it smell so bad in here? <laughs> okay. So, again, there is no labored refinement, no affectations. Generally, a child says what he thinks and expresses what he desires without subterfuge, without fear of what people will say. As a rule, he does not pose. He shows himself as he is. Conscious of his weakness, he depends in everything for his, on his father and his mother, from whom he has received, from, 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 what he sh from whom he should receive everything. Now, again, compare that, though, again, I think, to some of us adults, adults, you know, walking around all day wearing masks, you know, uh, we posture, we wear masks, we're pretentious, we're just downright phony sometimes, we're self-conscious, we're obsessed with what others think of us, we're full of pride, we refuse to acknowledge that we need God's help, and, you know, I could go on, but see how different this is from what happens to us? You know, the phoniness, the subterfuge, the wearing of masks, the flattery, the, you know, okay. So again, to just have this kind of sense of integrity and simplicity, and so on. Now let's pick up this next paragraph and we'll talk a little bit more about simplicity as well here. This is also from Garigou Lagrange. The child of God should, first of all, be simple and upright 
without duplicity. He should exclude hypocrisy, falsehood from his life, and not seek to pass for what he is not. The Lord says, if your eye be single, your whole body shall be lightsome. That is, if the gaze of your spirit is honest, if your intention is upright, your whole life will be illuminated. The, the child of God should also then preserve the consciousness of his weakness and indigence. Now, this idea of simplicity or being single. You know, there's this uh, a passage he's referring to there from, um, from uh, I think it's Matthew 7, right? Where the Lord says, look, he says, um, he talks about um, having a good eye. I think our modern translations are a little too vague. He talks about having a good eye. And most of us moderns think, oh, that means I should have custody of the eyes. The eye is the lamp of the body, Jesus says. And if your eye is good, the whole body will be good. Now, the problem is, lamps don't take in light, lamps give out light. So the Lord is not talking about custody of the eyes here, although custody of the eyes is a very good topic. That's not what Jesus is talking about. The Lord is talking about having a simple eye, an eye that's gained to one thing. Uh, for example, you've heard the beatitude, blessed are the pure of heart. But you think immediately moral pureness or... You know, but really what's being said there literally in the Greek is blessed are the single-hearted. So to have a single heart or a single eye is, is, a, is a call to a kind of a simplicity. Let's start with the heart. St. Paul says, this one thing I do, I press on to the prize marked out for me in Christ Jesus my Lord. One thing. Can you say that's what you do? Do you just do one thing? Most of us are a mess of contrary desires. A thousand different things. The book of James says, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. So one of the gifts to desire from God is the gift of simplicity. Simplicity. I just know I need God, and I want to please God, and that's all I want. God, you're all I want. Psalm 27, there's only one thing I ask of the Lord. This alone I seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to contemplate his beauty. That's all I want. Simple, single-hearted, a single eye, just moving forward. And children have a lot of that simplicity. Now, to some degree, it's a little too focused on themselves. But the point is, they know they're needy, and they run to their parents, and they ask. Their life is very simple. Whereas we start to get very complicated. We want to please 10,000 different people. We want all these different sorts of things, and our life gets very complicated very quickly. So again, we're being taught a lot of things about spiritual childhood here, right? Simplicity. Um, to have some wonder and awe. To keep asking, why? Not just the exasperated why, but the fascinated why, right? Fascinosum et tremendum. Just to be filled with wonder and awe at all sorts of things. Um, we have, um, to have a proper dependence on God, of course, in all things, and on our parents, yes, as we're younger, but as we get older, even, to have a proper dependence on each other. I really need you. The Institute of Catholic Culture needs you. The people of God need you to be generous and to be dedicated to your faith. Our culture needs you. And so we, I need you. Others need you. You need me. Somehow, there is a proper understanding of saying, I really need help here. I can't do this by myself. I need someone to lay hands on me and just pray for me now, or whatever. There's, there's all kinds of things that we, because we're adults, we don't want to admit these things, you see. And to just have this more childlike simplicity. Wonder and awe. Why? Proper dependence. Humility. You know? 
I mean, ch children, I know that they sort of fight and they have, t you know, my toy, not yours, you know, but, but in their better moments, children just have this wonderful humility. They just are what they are. And they're not trying to pretend to be something they're not, which is fueled by pride, right? They're, they're, they're able to say, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't understand. Teach me. See? And that's where we get lost so quickly, all right? They're also very frank and unpretentious. There's a kind of a purity. And they pray so beautifully. You know, when we pray, do you, do you pray like that, just that openly and honestly with God? You know, that's not just modeled by children, but it's modeled in the book of Psalms. And what is the book of Psalms? It's a book inspired by the Holy Spirit that's basically the prayer book for Israel. And have you ever noticed that it enshrines every human emotion and need and thought? And some of them are very shocking. It was quick. Well, you know, how much longer, O oh Lord, before you destroy my enemy? Or, you know, there's despair and sorrow and regret, and there's also joy and expectation. It's, it's all there. It's, and, and God is basically saying, pray like dear children. And if you're troubled, talk to me about your trouble. You know, somebody said to me, I don't, I don't like to pray. Uh, I, I find prayer boring. I said, well, don't tell me. Tell God. You're already praying. <laughs> so if you need to start praying like this, Lord, I don't like to pray. What's wrong with me? But I don't like to pray. It's boring. I don't hear anything. That's five minutes of a prayer of honesty is better than two hours of a prayer of stuff you don't really mean. Just open, honest discussions with God, like the little girl who told Jesus a ghost story. Just having a delightful time with the Lord. Just, just, just that beautiful picture, that image of, of prayer. So again, we've, we've talked about a lot of different things about humility. We've talked about dependence and frankness and unpretentiousness and purity. The final thing I want to say is this word departure. As we wrap it up, I want to talk to you about a very strange beauty and a great return. And I mean, let me just tell you, I think that a lot of us are on a journey back to our childhood. And the Lord is going to help us in more, than, in more ways than you might expect. But let me just tell a personal story and then I'll tell you kind of a, a more of a generic story. The personal story is when I was five or six, I was very close to God. My, open, my, my earliest memories are that there was a beautiful statue of the Sacred Heart in my room, and it was an unusual statue because it was, um, it was blue, not red. He was wearing a blue garment, not a red garment. And uh, I used to talk to that statue, and, and he would talk to me. Now, I knew the difference between having imaginary friends, and that's not what I had with God. But I, I was very, very close to God, and I talked with God very plainly and very simply. And, and then some things began to happen in my life, like happens to most kids. You know, you start to grow up, and um, the flesh comes alive. But also, my dad went to Vietnam. And there was an odd moment in my life where my grandmother, I think she meant well, she said, oh, that statue's an antique, and he'll break it. So take it away from him. And, and, um, and so the statue went away. And I don't blame my grandmother, but I'm just saying that the, I, I remember the Lord saying, I need to go talk to other people now, and um, uh, you won't be hearing much from me. Uh, and I don't know who told me that, but I internalized it. But anyway... Somewhere in my very earliest years, I was like that with God. I just talked to God like that. And then it went away. And all these years, I've been trying to get it back. Some years ago, about two years ago, I talked to my Uncle Bob, and, and I said, you know, I, I've been wondering, whatever happened to that blue Sacred Heart statue? He said, oh, I've got that. So he mailed it to me, and uh, I got it back. And, you know, it's not as elegant as I remember <laughs> But I have it again. And, but I, I want you to know that all my life I've been trying to get back to that five-year-old who could just pray with that kind of beauty and simplicity. 
without losing, you know, a proper understanding of maturity in Christ. And uh, that's my story, and I've made a lot of progress. I thank God. God's given me the gift of a lot of contemplative prayer and a powerful sense of awareness and wonder and awe. Those things have been building up in my life, and I'm so, so grateful to God for it. And it makes me so much more joyful and so much, life's so much more interesting when you're like, wow, neat, instead of, I've got a few things figured out. <laughs> you know, life's just so much more interesting when you're like, everything's mysterious. So that leads me, though, to a more general observation. You know, I, uh, as a priest, um, and some of you as well, have been to many nursing homes. And uh, there's a strange beauty that I discover there. Very strange beauty. You know, usually most, most nursing homes have a place called Memory Lane, where the Alzheimer patients are. But anyway, it, the, people are at various stages of decrepitude. That's, let's just call it what it is. But there's something beautiful happening there. Unless you change and become like little children, you'll never inherit the kingdom of heaven. So there's a very strange mercy that's going on there. Strange mercy. Many of them are dependent on everyone. They, they, they can't walk anymore. They're pushed around in wheelchairs. Some of them, many of them wear diapers. I remember a woman I know that used to help run my parish, Catherine Zegowitz, I remember the last time I saw her, she was holding a doll and singing like a little girl, just singing. That, that woman ran my parish, and I depended on her for everything, but she declined rapidly into Alzheimer's and dementia, and uh, she died within uh, 10 months of you know, getting the diagnosis. But to see that decline fills us with horror, and yet it, it should also, if you, if, you, if you have the eyes of faith, you should see something beautiful going on there. Because we can't inherit the kingdom of God as relentless adults. Somehow we have to go back to that childhood. You know, back to that simplicity that we once had. And really, I think that the illusions are just gone. I don't think the reality is so different. Yes, they're wearing diapers. Yes, these are people who ran businesses. They raised children. They had grandchildren. They, they, they may have been leaders or politicians. And they, they may have done all kinds of things. They might have run parishes. And now they're like little children again. But really, from God's perspective, not much has changed. It's just that the veil has been cast aside. The mask is off now. and Their utter dependence on God and others for everything is just more obvious. But there's something beautiful going on there. you know. And There's just this great return to childhood. And I, I only offer that to you. I, I don't mean to say there aren't real hardships there and great sadnesses, but on the other hand, there's something beautiful that you shouldn't miss. And maybe that's the final necessary medicine that some of us are going to need to finally be humble enough and dependent enough and childlike enough to really inherit the kingdom. Because the Lord warns, he says, if you don't inherit the kingdom of God like a little child, you won't enter it. You can never forget that we're little children to God. And that's all that that implies. So I've gone on a little over time, so we'll end now, but I want to thank you for your time. And I do want to say that um, I've made that journey with many people. I saw my once proud father, you know, just cry like a child and say, all I want is to be with God. And God had to get him there because my father was a very powerful man, a very controlling man, a man who had everything under control. And, but there he was, just saying, all I want now is to go home and be with God. And you've seen the same. You've, you've made this journey with people. And painful though it is, don't forget the beauty of it. Because we're all called 
to a beautiful spiritual childhood. And it shouldn't take our deathbed to get us there. But if it's necessary, God will do it for us. And don't, when you go to nursing homes, don't pity them. Look with some admiration and see what God is doing and say, Lord, it's hard. This man or woman who raised me doesn't even recognize me anymore and they're crying like a baby and they sing little songs and they're wearing diapers. It's hard to look at, Lord, but it's a strange beauty. Something's happening that's probably the most important thing that's ever happened for them. You're getting them ready to go like a little child and inherit the kingdom. Amen. All right, so for question and answer, who's first? So, Monsignor, I was wondering, it, it hit me during your talk that there's a phrase, childlike trust in God, and I think you covered it some, but I think you can probably mind that more, and I was hoping you could share with us something about how we should trust in God, yeah. possibly. Right. You know, I think, um, maybe I, I'm, I'm tempted to tell a story, but I have to keep it brief. When I was seven years old, my father went to Vietnam, and... Um, I think my parents meant well. They said, now you're the man of the house. I was seven years old. But they told me that. And I was not the man of the house. I was terrified. I had nightmares. And I'd never had a lot of anxiety up until that point. But by that, at that point, I, I, I learned what anxiety was. And then Dad came home, and my anxiety went away because Daddy was home. And so I, I think that, I mean, and I, I won't say that my father was a perfect father or any of those things, but I will say that certainly as a young child, I felt very protected when he was there. And um, I think that somewhere along the line, just developing this sense of the presence of God, the normal Christian life is to be in living conscious contact with God. And as long as I know that Daddy's home, my, a lot of my anxiety goes away, and I just trust. And I don't always understand. I remember one time my father said to me, Daddy, where are we going? Are we going? Uh, he said, you don't need to know. I'm driving. <laughs> and I said, mm -hmm. and he says, no, really, honestly, I know where I'm going. Yeah, anyway, so somewhere in, in, in some of those little stories, I hope is an answer. Okay. We have a question coming in from online uh, from an FS from Sterling, Virginia. Uh, FS, Sterling isn't far away, so you should be here tonight. <laughs> it's always better in person. You shouted it from the housetop over there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. If you've lost the childlike wonder, what can you do to get it back? Yeah, I, I think, well, let, let me again tell you a little story. And maybe it'll help. It's the end of the movie, The Color Purple, which I do not really recommend you view. It's a pretty heavy and sort of it's a struggle. It, it deals, frankly, with a lot of immoral things. But, but at the end of the movie, there are two women walking through a field with the lilacs in bloom. And um, one of them is named Shug and the other is named Seely. And Shug is, well, say Seely's had a hard life. She's been... Um, beaten by her husband and she's had just a lot of trouble in her life, you know, and... Uh, uh, and uh, Shug has been, shall we say, lived a very immoral life, but she's recently met God. And there, these two women are walking through a field, and Celia says, I was angry with God. And Shug, and Shug says, you was angry with God? Well, I think God gets angry with us when we walk through a field and misses the color purple. And I think somewhere in, in that little story is just an invitation to ask for the capacity to be amazed at simple things like the color purple, like um, 
the magnificence of when you hear something, you know, uh, so much science today, I'm amazed at what, what science, scientists should all be on their knees. I mean, not just scientists, all of us. Like, wow! Incredible! Every time we, we discover something new, more mysteries behind it, but oh, wow! Incredible! Awesome the way things work together. The whole world shouts the glory of God. And somewhere, I think in that is the invitation to become, just ask for the gift. Lord, give me wonder and awe and, and, and uh, just give me the gift, Lord. I need it. And just let them go to work. Anybody else? All right. You, you, you wouldn't make me go all the way over there. While he's doing that, let me just give another thought. That nominalism talk's important. Don't miss it. You know, a lot of people say, how do we get to this mess that we're in today? It started with nominalism. You know, the whole medieval synthesis broke down over nominalism, and that led to Descartes, and we're on the dark side of the Cartesian divide, and bringing Immanuel Kant, and all these other things, and before you know it, we got this witch's brew where people can't look at their own human body and know whether they're male or female. How did we get into this kind of darkness and confusion? It started with nominalism. Monsignor, I have a why question for you. Why would you give a talk on being childlike and not mention St. Therese? <laughs> Um, I don't know. I don't know. I think um, I certainly read a story of a soul, and I think she's certainly the great, the great saint of that. So uh, I thank you for the recommendation. And did you hear? You heard the record. So read a story of a soul by Saint Therese of, uh, of Lisieux. And um, I'm a great devotee of hers, and even more so of her uh, of, of Big Teresa, namely Teresa of Avila. But all of them have a lot to teach us. John of the Cross. Um, any great spiritual master will teach you, as we read from Garigou Lagrange. And he was actually commenting and meditating on St. Therese of Lisieux. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just curious, why is it if you do have that childlike um, feeling and that awe, that it feels there's like some guilt mm -hmm. sort of feeling, you know, that you should be more mature or that there's something wrong with you? Mm -hmm. Well, being mature is contextual. I should be more mature um, in terms of my understanding of the teachings of the faith. I should be, you know, and so on. I should be more mature in taking a, a responsibility for what I ought to do in my life. You know, I, I, there's a lot of things I can't do, but what I ought to do, I ought to do. So there is this contextual quality of, of, uh, of that. But on the other hand, before God, I'm utterly dependent. And it's entirely appropriate to be just a little child before God. Um, so I think the context is important. And if we know the context, then there shouldn't be any guilt in just admitting that I can't even cause the next beat of my heart. That's how dependent I am on God. That's just true. And so there's no, there should be no guilt where there's that kind of truth. So I would just say the word context comes to mind. There are times when a person is just being too, you know, pouty and, uh, you know, childish rather than childlike. And there aren't you know, they aren't really taking their, the authority they should have over their life, and that, then there should be appropriate sense of compunction about that, but it's contextual. Lord, bless you and thank you for being our Father. And um, I was so moved by hearing those little children running around looking for their father up on that hill near Nazareth and calling out, Abba, Abba, Abba. And so help me to be like that, Lord. Um, Help me to just keep running and looking and saying, Abba, Abba, Abba. And um, keep me that uh, simple, Lord. Keep me that uh, rooted in you. Keep me trusting. Keep me humble. Uh, keep me filled with wonder and awe. And keep me dependent upon you. And we ask all these things, all of us together now, in the name of Jesus, who's Lord forever and ever. Amen. Amen.
We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.